Welcome to the Little Way Farm and Homestead podcast. Little Way Farm and Homestead is a regenerative and educational farm in southeastern Indiana. Motivated by the Catholic faith, we strive to inspire, encourage, and support the development of homesteads and small-scale farms in faith and virtue. I'm Matthew. And I'm Carissa. We're excited for you to join us on the podcast. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Little Way Farm and Homestead podcast. We have a great episode to share with you today featuring Sean and Beth Doherty. You might have heard our prior episode with the Dohertys discussing low-input farming, but this episode focuses much more on dairy cows. One of my favorite questions that came up was whether or not a dairy cow must be fed grain. This question and many more are covered throughout the episode. We hope you find the discussion inspiring and of value to you wherever you are in your homesteading journey. To learn more about Littleway Farm and Homestead, including the farm itself, or for other podcast episodes, please check out littlewayhomestead.com or email us at hello at littlewayhomestead.com. Well, Sean and Beth Doherty, thank you again for joining us on the Little Way Farm and Homestead podcast. We're excited to have you both here and for another opportunity to chat with you all. We're Glad to be here. Excited to be here. Well, we want to dive right in. One of the conversation points that came up in our when we spoke last was about the importance of dairy animals on the farm, specifically having some type of lactating ruminant animal uh, and being able to incorporate that animal into the farm for a milieu of reasons. We want to dive right in and talk about dairy cows. And to begin that, I want to ask just kind of generally, why, what is it that is so important about a dairy cow across a family homestead? Well, the most important thing is that instead of a one-time harvest, it is a twice-a-day daily harvest. And it is the best food for the farm, for the humans, for everybody. There was uh, people who were saying that cow's milk is only for cows. I don't know who they were. But they don't know their anthropology. Right. I mean, this has been, you know, God said... uh, I'm going to give you this wonderful land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Milk is the food that people understood would make you survive through practically anything. And uh, it was essential for the sustainable farmer. So that's the most important thing that the cow does is that it um, gives you this, this unbelievable food twice a day. But the other things that it, does is it gives you fertility there's a there's a big picture part of this right like the the daily the twice daily harvest of proteins fats and sugars is the the in fine in the moment answer the big picture answer takes us all the way back to creation it takes us to the beginning of agriculture and it takes to the to the prime the the first source as in the only source as well as the primary and time source of energy for life on the planet, and that's solar energy. When God clothed the earth with plants, he had to build in a way that soil replenishes itself from whatever the plants take out, right? And that built-in way is called death and decay. For soil to be built and held in place, the ground needs to stay covered with plants, and those plants have to um, provide their parts as they shed leaves, twigs, etc., those parts have to be broken down to make soil. 
40% of the land mass of the planet is grasslands of some kind. And those plants don't, like a deciduous tree, drop their leaves so that they can fall to the ground and become broken down. Those leaves need to be grazed. If we leave them for weather and gravity to drop them to the ground, grass plants will actually smother themselves before they break down adequately to let new grass shoots grow in. Sure, for a year, two, three, a few years, a grass plant that is not shorn in some way, mowed or grazed, can continue to get some sunlight down to its growth points. But at some point, the mass of plant above the growth points will smother the plant. So we made grazing animals. Now, here's where magic comes in. All the life energy on the planet is solar energy, is captured by plants and locked up in long, complex carbohydrates, um, hydrocarbons, we call them. And 80% of the hydrocarbon mass on the planet, as plants make it, is cellulose or some kind of cellulosic fiber. Now, that has solar energy locked up in the chemical bonds in the cellulosic fiber. And guess what? Almost nothing, macro animal, almost none of them can access that. Think about that. 80% of the energy locked up in plants is inaccessible to meat eaters, to most omnivores, to um, the mass of, of animals that aren't either cellulose digesting bacteria in the soil or cellulose bac- digesting bacteria in a termite's gut. We could raise termites and eat them. Or the cellulose digesting bacteria in the guts of ruminants. Ruminants are specially made to digest cellulose more efficiently and to a far greater degree than any other kind of land animal fitted into the human food system. I can't speak to things like manatees. Um, so we have to figure out if we, if we, a Catholic family, anybody settles down on a piece of land and says, this land is now in my care so that I may feed my family and pass the land on to my children so that they may feed their families. Our job is to figure out how do I harvest solar energy and turn it into what two things, food for now and fertility so that the soil can grow on raising plants. I know enough about you to know that you now see the rest of this picture, which is that when we take ruminants classically in the West cows, graze them on our grass, they turn that that inaccessible energy locked up in cellulose into this amazing thing. We go from carb that we can't digest to proteins, fats, and sugars in their most digestible forms Plus, what comes out of the back end of the cow every day is tens of pounds of mostly broken down cellulose already pre-digested, ready to go with its probiotics in place to go back into the soil so that the soil can go on doing this ad infinitum. Now, now one of the things that's really important is that the grazing process be done well. You have to manage your animals well. We were just on a farm uh, where the people simply have a have a perimeter fence. They turn their cows loose. Uh, they have other other uh, uh, ruminants in there, and they are destroying that pasture because they continually go back to what they like most and leave the junk. And so eventually, that field will look like what we drive by. Uh, any pastures we drive by on the highway often 
uh, most people are not rotationally grazing. So we will find that they are mowed down to like a golf course, which some people would say, oh, that looks great. Uh, that's not what it should be. And then these woody, uh, stemmy things that the cows won't eat. But if the animals are managed well and they are rotationally grazed all year round, um, they will end up, again, not just with their manure, but with the way that they graze, they are going to improve the soil. And that is, there are two, and in, in making any decisions on the farm, there are two very, very important uh, considerations. The first is the family. How is this going to affect the family? And the second is, how is this going to affect the soil? And the soil is being ignored over and over and over again by farmers today, where they are just destroying the the, the soil, or they think that there are things that are going to make it all better, like I'm going to no-till, or I'm going to, we come up with these kind of catchphrases that ultimately, uh, they're better than previous methods, but they are not really improving the soil. The way that you improve the soil is by running a ruminant on that grass and then moving it around. So keeping most of your farm in pasture, not mowing it and taking it for hay, but for but really letting it be cow food. And as Beth was saying, then we get this wonderful, we're unlocking what is in the grass and it becomes our food, which is. Uh, and when we say rotational grazing, um, there are tons of terms for various practices, which mean moving animals around on a pasture. Um, people argue about the terms because it could be so easy to misinterpret a term like rotational grazing to mean you've got four pastures and you move the cows from one to the next, you know, on a, on a calendar basis. We mean something rather more complex that has to do with moving animals um, based on their impact on the place they've been and not bringing them back to any land until it's ready based on its regrowth. What would be, maybe you know, I'm thinking of the, the young family who's just starting out and they want to get into homesteading. Maybe they want to do a little bit of farming, but they're committed. They've heard at this point, they believe that the dairy animal is something that they need to bring out to their farm for their family's sustenance. They believe in the idea of rotational grazing and the impact of the ruminant on the land and they're bought into the idea and they believe it. What are some practical steps for them to get started? Types of cows, uh, uh, different characteristics within the cow maybe they should be looking for? Yeah, one of the first steps we might suggest is um, get off of YouTube. Um, you're going to find yeah. that YouTube is going to give you a lot of misinformation about that. There are good people on YouTube. Joel Salatin, obviously, Greg Judy. Uh, but even those people are on such a different level and their goals are so different from what the homesteaders' goals are that everybody needs to be very careful about what they're hearing on YouTube and definitely not seeing it as uh, biblical truths that, oh, so-and-so said it, I must do it this way. Um, one of the things that that in, to help people image what we mean by rotational grazing and, and getting that cow and starting to move it is think of Laura and Mary. They had simply a picket and a rope. So they would put a stake in the ground and they would let that animal eat for 24 hours or 12 hours on the area. And then they would move it. 
and they would keep moving it and they would not bring that cow. Now we don't see this necessarily in the books, but they were smart farmers. You they don't would, bring it. Uh, you don't bring an animal back to food that's not ready to go yet. So you're waiting for that for the grass to regrow to full height before, well, till eight inches or right. something like that, until you bring it back to the same area again. So that's one thing that we really uh, want people to understand is this is not complicated. Um, you don't have to be measuring your bricks. You don't have bricks is a is a way a of measuring of food value in a Right. It's there's there's of. there's lots of as soon as you start doing math, stop. You're probably it's probably unnecessary. Right. right. Make this very simple and think about Laura and Mary simply moving a cow around. Now, multiple cows. Again, you can do some of that with a picket and a, and a stake. It, it starts becoming harder. And that's where we would move into um, electric fence, polytwine, super easy to, to set up. Uh, not in paddocks that are preset, not in permanent or semi-permanent paddocks, but in paddocks that you can continue to expand. So step in posts and polytwine. This kind of stuff you can get from Premier One. Uh, they're a good company source. Another good company source is Kencove. We don't get any money from these people, uh, but those are those are sources they're that both, we like. They're both like. American-made and good sources. The other thing is, people who are listening to this, they can email us at seanandbeth1960 at gmail.com. We're happy to send out what we, we've kind of come up with a starter, electric fence starter kit. Uh, that, we don't sell it. We just tell people what to buy if they want to start out. Yeah, if they want to go to Premier or Kencove. These are the things that we would suggest. Uh, and we certainly are willing to answer emails and talk to people about questions that they might have. So I've, I went down a rabbit hole a little bit. I'm not sure if I covered all the things that you were talking about. So some things, some things that I would look at and um, to go back to the YouTube thing for a minute, looking at YouTube, like um, submitting your question to the algorithm algorithms of YouTube is a little bit like if you wanted to know how to play chess, getting a snapshot of a chess player in the middle of a move. You may be seeing something brilliant, but if it's out of context, it's not gonna give you good information. Um, there may be great things to see out there on the internet, but your best teacher is a few basic principles and then get out there and make it happen. Just do it. Pay attention to animals, plants. God's gonna show you. There are no tricks. Nobody's changing the rules partway through. So that's your, that's your best choice. As far as cows go, two things that are really important. Make sure those teats are gonna function the way you want them to function. If you, for some reason, are certain you're gonna use a milking machine, and we wanna emphasize here, milking machines are not necessary. And if not have, preferred either. If you have no hands or your hands are extremely arthritic, then you might say, in my case, milking machines are necessary, but in general, Mill machines are unnecessary. So let's think hard for a minute about how we're planning on milking this animal because hands are going to be better for the cow and are going to work even when your power's out. We're going to lean toward hands. Make sure the teats on this animal are long enough for complete grasp. If you, for most people, if those teats are about the size of your thumb, you know, from the webbing to the end, that's a pretty good teat size. So teat size is very important. 
another big chunk of importance is what's the history of this cow? If she spent her whole life, I mean, when we started out 35 years ago, 40 years ago, the instructions you'd often read are, you know, like you might get a cull cow from a dairy, from a commercial dairy. Well, in general, that's not going to be a good recommendation anymore. In 1950, it might have been a good recommendation. It's not one now. Um, you'd like an animal who's already accustomed to living out of doors, accustomed to harvesting and and digesting her own meals, not grain. Um, and you'd like an yeah, you'd like an animal who has not had a lot of grain in her diet. People say, "What's a lot of grain?" Well, a cow is going to eat um, about uh, say you've got a thousand pound cow, she's going to eat about thirty pounds of dry matter in the way of grass or hay in a day. Corn, grain can substitute, you know, um, it's concentrated, so it can substitute for part of that. But if she's been eating, say, five pounds of grain a day, that's a pretty significant part of her calories. Um, beware the owner who says, oh, she just gets a little scoop when we bring her in for milking. Take a look at the scoop. Find out how much he really means. But given that we're living in a broken world, in a broken environment, in a broken system, we're going to have to start with broken parts, broken land, broken us, broken animals. Um, that's not a, a depressing thought. It's simply a challenge to our creative cooperation with God. We often tell people the best dairy cow is the one you can get, the one you can get your hands on. If you start out with the, in quotes, wrong cow, as in she's not an ideal fit, if you didn't pay more for her than she's worth in beef, you haven't lost anything. In the meantime, you can learn. You learn way more from a bad cow in some ways than you learn from a perfect cow. Because a bad cow is going to throw you curveballs. She's going to get a limp and you're going to learn pretty quickly that a cow with a limp isn't a call to the vet usually. It's usually just a reason to not make her walk so far over so much hard ground for a while until she recovers. Um, we learned our first cow was a total disaster. And we didn't know that because when you start out farming and, and you've never done it, your grandparents are dead and they were the last people in the, in the family who farmed. You have nobody to show you. There is a piece of your brain, at least a piece of my brain, I think of Sean's, that goes, this is all my fault. And so you... When, when our first cow had more than half of the calves she dropped were DOA. No telling why. We've kept 75 cows since then, and none of them have had that habit, so we don't know what was up. She had um, metabolic issues that meant we were often babying her in the field as she wouldn't get up for a week. It was a disaster, but boy, did we learn a ton. And in the meantime, we encountered the value of milk on a farm. It feeds everything. It feeds pigs and chickens. It feeds dogs and cats. It makes cheese and milk and butter. It, we can't run the farm without milk. Um, so the best cow is the one you can get your hands on. Now, I'm just going to throw this out there for young Catholic families. I know a lot of super women. I see one sitting next to you, Matthew. And... We think, you know, like, um, uh, two toddlers and a baby on the hip and I'm pregnant. And I'm going to be okay milking this cow. I applaud 
I applaud not only the intention, but if, if the husband's on board, I applaud the idea. But remember not to measure your success. Don't measure yourself against some image of an imaginary pioneer woman who did it all and raised 10 kids because she didn't raise 10 kids. She died after five and the husband had to remarry for the second five. Doing everything can be too big of a strain. Feel like a success if for say, how, how, what, how would you start to describe that? I mean, a young couple with several small children who um, has we're, we're a seeing them around us and, and gets a dairy cow. You need to be prepared for things like um, having to let the, you know, like getting her started, getting milking, realizing that having a, um, a baby four months into this lactation is going to make things too difficult and drying her off. Let, letting her graze your pasture for the rest of the year and not getting milk out of her is just fine. We have seen fathers, dads who say, honey, this is your thing. I'm so busy with my job that if you want to do, if you want to go down this route, you can go down this route, but this is your thing. Um, I, I'm not going to uh, critique people who make the, if, if they can make it work, that's great. Uh, but I think having two horses in the harness is really important um, so that when Beth can't be available for something, I'm there and she's available when I, you know, our split normally is I'm the morning milker and Beth does the afternoon milking. Um, but but if I've got adoration, for one another, if I've got adoration uh, in the middle of the night and she's uh, she covers for me the next morning and there are other times when and when we're sick. So we've got to be able to work together as a team. That's really, really important. I want to throw two more things into that mix. A 10 year old can milk a cow, but a 10 year old should not be in charge of a cow. Um, that is the adults need to be intimately involved in the decisions that are being made. Now that 10 year old can become a 12 year old, who not only knows how to handle that cow, but knows how to set up a paddock the right size for her. Even then, that's under parental guidance, parental attention. Believe that your kid can grow into this, but um, you know, a lot of folks are like, oh, my 10-year-old takes care of the chickens. That's great. I hope the grown-ups are paying attention so the child is um, has some backup. But a cow is going to be, a, it's just a bigger responsibility. And then the other piece that I want to throw in that mix is, and we can, we can add a little spice of Wendell Berry into this. We've learned in, we've been married, I think, I think we had our 38th anniversary. I don't remember, dear. Any either. Um, and, you know, here's, here it is, the 21st century. There are all sorts of pressures on the family. It has been our huge blessing that we've always homesteaded, which meant we always had a shared, besides the children who are going to grow up, um, we've always had a shared, I don't want to say interest, is more like that. We've had a shared concern. And as the children have grown, it's become a shared concern with the children. Now that most of our children are, are adults, it's still a shared concern. And when B 
being a nursing mom of toddlers and then gradually fewer and fewer of the kids were even needing to be homeschooled. Now I'm down to one. Um, this shared vocation, Sean's and my shared vocation has become something we value very, very, we've come to see it as part of our divine vocation starting in Genesis chapter one. And it makes me think of Wendell Berry talking about neighborhood and community and marriage in terms of, he said, he says of city couples with each with his or her own job who share a bed and a house and maybe some meals every week. And he says, they are not able to enact their marriage, their marriedness. And, um, the, the shared interest of a farm is a gift to a couple that helps them enact their marriedness when certainly children do that. But children are their own thing. They belong, they're not ours, they're not us. Whereas the, the farm is this object outside of ourselves that we can um, share and serve in order to serve our family. And, and the thing that, you know, so much of what we've done, we've done on faith that we believe that this is the right way. Mm -hmm. We don't, you know, uh, we, I mean, we were just having a conversation with one of, one of my older kids today about, about, he said, you know, what we did as kids, nobody else was doing. <laughs> nobody else was getting up uh, in the, <laughs> at 5 a.m. and going outside and milking a cow and then going to mass. No, nobody was doing that. It was very, but the payback you don't know when the payback will come. You don't know. And, and it's not just about payback. But right now, uh, all of my children but one. Who are we talking about? Yeah, everybody's over here except one, right? Except for James. Oh, I guess it's Everybody's true. here except for James. And James can't be here because he's in the Air Force. Everybody else is over at the house site. And they are doing timber framing. For the it sake is, of your listeners, our house burned down last May 30th. And it is the most beautiful. Oh it is going to be unbelievable what they are doing. People are just, uh, you know, we're going to have workshops and things like that as people come in. And when they see this house, they are going to be. And, and the thing, they, they are so much more skilled than I ever was. And more than that, they are. They are not perfectionists, but they want it to be right. So uh, in, in my world, uh, we would get started and then just keep pounding away because I don't have time. We've got to do it. They will take it apart five times to make sure that each joint fits perfectly. And then it's all put together with wooden dowel pins. It is If, if an you want amazing... to see images, you can go to our... Um, very seldom used blog, One Cow Revolution, or I know that John, Paul, and Maggie have a YouTube channel that's just John, Paul, and Maggie, and um, they posted a, a real short video of the guys putting part of the house together yesterday. It's beautiful. Oh, it's it's unbelievable. So that that's what they're doing right now in uh, nine degree weather. Uh, they're all over there cutting timbers, and that's where I was until until this interview pulled me out of the cold. <laughs> and that's where we're going back as soon as that's this is right. done. That's right. It is I was thinking, interesting. I was thinking, go ahead. 
Well, I was just going to say, you know, when we started this podcast, uh, it was in August of 2023. And we really, I don't think, had any idea for what was to become of it. And what we have found since then is a certain confirmation that there certainly is, uh, you know, maybe I'll struggle to put words to exactly what this is, but there is a sense of a movement happening across the country, the world, an idea, maybe a reaction against a current political system or a current societal structure where people are finding that there is a, a better way of living. And I think I struggled to say that this way was that way for some time because I didn't want to be exclusionary and I didn't want it to sound as if this was the only way that you can live. And I, I don't think it is. I think there's certainly legitimate reasons not to, but I am finding, and maybe it's, it's striking me as you all talk about having, you know, the homesteading life as something else to pursue together, that this is a good way of living. And I wonder what you all might think of that specifically with regards to Catholics. Oh, I, you know, I, we can't think of a better way to raise children. Uh, children need chores. Children need to learn skills. Children need to work together. Uh, and once again, uh, the, the payoff that we've seen has been just we've, amazing. We've got Genesis chapter one, right, right. in which the Lord says, let us make man in our own image so that he may have dominion over the land, the seed, the plants, the animals. Um, we, we have to catch what that so that means, right? It means that our, our image being in his likeness is a function of our stewardship, not just over creation with a, you know, sort of a sweeping all the atoms in the, in the universe and let's go out and conquer a bunch of them, but over the, the life on this planet. And um, it is funny that we often, um, we just did a farm consultation for John and Becca Lovell of Warrior Poet Society. And um, John stopped us on the first day and he said, it's funny, you're using terms that would normally uh, be red flags for evangelical Christians, like um, uh, serving the ser serving nature and taking your cues from nature, and it is a shame that because some people practice idolatry of nature, actually we're not very good at any kind of idolatry except for of ourselves. But you know what I mean. Um, because it can because nature can be taken out of the Christian context, we assume we we grant those words to the to the pagans to use in their way but really that's what genesis says we're here for so that's a piece of our answer if if we say my responsibility is not to provide my own food i'm going to let mcdonald's do that or i'm going to let kroger's do that or i'm going to let aldi's do that you are uh, that's not what god has said uh, so I think that that's really something to think about. But you also are missing out on a tremendous education and wonderful experiences to have with your children. That our grocery store is our basement, our cellar, our uh, our freezer, mm -hmm. and we daily go there and that's where we get our food. 90 to 95% of what we eat comes from our farm. What we eat that doesn't come from the farm is 
is luxuries and, you know, coffee, tea, sugar, things like that. And um, we enjoy our luxuries. We're happy to have them. And since they don't cost us all that much, we don't have a problem with having them. But our um, responsibility to our family and our community tells us that we need to have more control over our food than that, right? Um, you know, you, Matthew, are responsible for the, the protecting and providing for a family. And because you till the earth and subdue it, because you practice husbandry of plants and animals, you can say to yourself with some, some certainty, when my children are hungry, I, Matthew, can make sure that they have something to eat. It's a much longer stretch for um, somebody whose job is a nine to five or whatever it might be, but it is, is a job, the only benefit from which accruing to his family is cash to go buy goodness knows from where, goodness knows grown how, food that goodness knows how it got here and goodness knows whether it will get here tomorrow. That's, I totally get that, that we are born into that situation, that people aren't out there electing to be lazy or um, careless and say, eh, let other people take care of this. I'll just have a cash job and buy my food. We didn't choose it. But as we mature as adults, mature as Christians, mature as parents, we should begin to have our eyes open. I don't think we can help if we're, if we're awake and um, responsible. We begin to have our eyes opened to the fact that our, re our actual needs, down to the water we drink and the, and the removal of our waste, our actual needs are all being curated via, via the means of cash and proxied out to people whose methods and intentions and um, ability to go on doing so are largely unknown to us. And even if we have commercial farmers who are doing the best job that God they can, bless them all. when you are on that scale, and this is why we think it's incredibly important for people to be farming on the human scale, but when you are small, when you are farming on the commercial level scale, you are forced to use methods that uh, I mean, there's no way to deal with weed pressure other than spraying it with poison. On thousands of acres. I think we kind of wandered astray. I'm not sure where we were going. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's okay, because a, a lot of what you're saying are things that we're coming across as well. The idea of human scale productive, productivity, productive labor, subsistence farming, these ideas, I think, are becoming more of intrigue to people because they're recognizing that what has been promised to them in society, the frailty of infrastructure that's been built to support a society that ultimately, uh, at times, is in contrast to Catholic values and a way of living, they are finding can be found in a way that we can build it uh, now. Uh, but that means that things are going to look different. Something we would add to that. Um Farming is not just like the faith life, but good farming for people who weren't raised that way, even for people who were raised that way, is part of the faith life. And it is it has this in common with um, the converts out there, also the, the cradle Catholics who maybe came to a deepening of their faith in adult life um, are going to recognize this. 
there's an awful lot to farming and faith that is uh, that happens because you launch out into the deep. You put out into the deep. You say, well, um, that deep is unplumbable by, by me. I don't know what's in it. Some of it might be scary. I could sink in it and not and not be able to sustain. I don't know what will happen, but I'm going to launch into it because my reason and my faith tell me it's a good. And then it's going to teach us, teach is such a thin word. It's, it's going to deform and grow and, and um, develop. And uh, what is it that butterflies do? They, they, Metamorphose. It's going to metamorphose us into a different kind of human being. Um, we can only tell you that it happens. You as a, as a homesteader have already experienced it some. And for your listeners who are thinking, well, maybe this would be a good way to live. When you undertake to do this, remember, this is God's creation. He blows his breath into it at every second it's not going to let you down. It's got, as Sean often says to people, God didn't devise a world in which failure was um, the default mode. Life is the default mode. However, if we choose to say, I'm going to live differently than what nature, and that is the majority of the world right now, I'm going to instead of being in the economy of the farm where I get what I need from the farm, I live in a world, many of us live in a world where I'm in the land of the dollar. And so I know that if I go out and, and accrue as many dollars as I can, I can get everything I want. That system is so fragile because all it takes is the petroleum system to go down or coronavirus to come in or any number of things. And suddenly the dollar isn't solving the problem where when those things happen to us, all those little bumps in the road on the farm, they were just bumps in the road because the farm provided what our needs are, not the mighty dollar. Again, it's, you're speaking all the things that we are coming across at this point. I'm I'm suspicious we're either reading the same books or you read them a long time ago or just <laughs> in your natural wisdom have come to these conclusions. Um, I, want, I want you and I want anybody listening to know that that's precisely what happens. Um, you begin, the universe begins to be a place where you recognize um, your own, you recognize the lights that you've been given in other people, in their books, in things that happen on the farm as you take as you take steps on the farm, things that are given back to you, like um, fertility and, and abundance, you come to see the unity of God in that similarity of thought that you're describing. And the, the, an easy illustration for me is that um, uh, Sean and I have always been big readers Wendell Berry's been on our bookshelf for many years. Um, 30 years ago when I tried to read Wendell Berry, it was opaque to me. Um, I had no substance in my mind to respond to his words. But many years later, reading Wendell Berry, it's my own thought stated obviously better than I could state it since these are Wendell's words. Um, but it's you encounter the truths as truths and not simply as words in a 
book. And I would say that um, modern first world Western people, we are, we're about due for some real honest face-to-face um, knowledge instead of abstract book knowledge. You, you, you do not know. It is one thing, for example, to read that grass is good for cows. If you rotate your cows, they'll be healthy. Um, if they're healthy, they can face uh, climatic stress, right? It's another entirely for me to go down the hill on a night when it's on an evening when it's 14 degrees and it's going to go down to four overnight and move aside a section of fence to let my cows onto their 12 hour paddock and have them come running down the hill. And as they pass me, flourish their heels, basically, which is a a sign of happiness and ebullience in a cow and see that on January 14th, 2024, my cows who have lived their entire lives in this field, who have had access to nothing to eat but the huge biodiversity of this field, but have been moved every 12 hours onto fresh paddocks, are so healthy on nothing but winter forage. This is not hay, guys. This is just standing grass in the field that when they go onto their new meal in 14 degree weather, they're so thrilled they're going to kick up their heels and, and show me that. That's a, that's a level of learning that's really vital to me because... We've all had the experience of reading, put a big quotation mark around this, truths, and spitting them back out on tests, maybe, or reproducing them for, a, for an employer that do not resonate with our souls and are not demonstrable in the world around us. Here, in immersing ourselves in nature, we get to learn, we imbibe truths directly from the God who made them. And we see them resonating all around us. And they feed us really delicious food. And the thing, again, that uh, that we take away as Christians, as Catholics, is how good our God is. That he has created a pattern of living. That if we will follow that pattern, we will have this incredible abundance. this The best food that there ever was. And not only that, but the farm will continue to improve every year so that when we pass on, we will be passing on to our children a better farm, better land than when we picked it up. And it produced these fabulous kids, seven of the eight of them, plus, you know, husbands, wives, children, etc., work to rebuild our farmhouse that built, that burned down. And they're having a terrific time. Our favorite people to work with are one another and our and our greater community here. Um, this is, you know, it, so much, this could so easily sound like, hooray for us, aren't we cool? And it isn't that thing. It's simply, if I accept the limitations that I see justice requires of me, like not taking more from the soil than I can put back in, if I accept those limitations, God doesn't let me down. If I I will reverence his creation, his creation was made for our joy, for our, for our health, for our abundance, um, except his limitations. And and just like every marriage should be a, people should look at marriages and say, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. I want that too. Um, What we have found with our family is that 
people see what we do and say, it, that's possible. Uh, and it's possible in a world that I think has given up on a lot of that, that uh, family, uh, that parents are at odds with their teenagers and people don't like each other. They assume and, that kids will hate chores, that chores are an imposition on the child. And my only, uh, that my only real uh, treasure has to be dollars because that's going to guarantee me that I have food and things like that, where money doesn't mean much to us. What really means a lot to us is our families and that we can be with our grandchildren and, and not just be with them, but work with them and share with them. And when they need milk, we've got milk for them. And when when we need milk, we'll get milk from them. It It's a wonderful sharing that that is unfortunately unusual in our world, and it shouldn't be. It's time we had more contact with real stuff. Fewer human constructs, more dirt, plants, and animals. Hearing you guys talk about your family and your children, it absolutely gives me that feeling of like seeing something so beautiful that you've created and seeing that it's a possibility for us too. And hoping that we are walking in that same journey towards having that type of relationship and um, mutual provision for our own family one day. I did want to get back slightly to the cow topic. I was curious, is there any particular breed or type of dairy cow that you guys really prefer or would encourage other people to look into? Um, we, we happen to like jerseys because that's what we started off with. Uh, but we've heard wonderful things about Guernseys, Shorthorns, uh, uh, you know, Mutt's, Dexters. Mutt's, we like our Dexters. Mutts are great. Yeah. Um, some, some points that I'd look for. So um, I'll throw this out there. Uh, we, we have in print eight short books. We call them field guides. They're just self-published and you can order them from our website, Through, One yeah, Cow Revolution. Right. Or you can go to the um, uh, ebook site, Lulu, L-U-L-U, and find them there. But in one of the cow, cow books, there's a list of 15, 14, 15 points that we would say, okay, here are things to look at if you're shopping for a cow. Um, I'm not suggesting everybody go buy it. I'm just going to like condense that smaller size wherever you are. So the mega cow, the huge cows that we have now, those are the result of breeding programs that didn't didn't happen in a farm setting, like what makes this animal more productive uh, in a natural setting. They happened in breeding programs at, at land-grant universities or on really big farms. Big cows are not very efficient. Um, so I would say go for smaller-bodied cows. Avoid anything in the way of mini and teacup because... The breeding programs that produced big cows and left behind things like um, uh, forage efficiency and resilient health were also left out of the breeding programs that led to teeny tiny cows. If what you're after is a cow that's only waist high, you're not so your genetic selection has to be for that. And you're leaving behind things like fuel efficiency and good health. So go the mid-sized cow is going to be in that um, like 35, 45 inch range, um, which means for most of us, that cow does not come up to our shoulder. 
I mean, we're not talking about her head. We're talking about her withers, her shoulders. Um, uh, we, we want one that does really well on, on forage. Grasses them. Right. And, and native grasses. Uh, we don't want to have to give them alfalfa pellets or we don't want to have to give them grain or we don't want to have to give them. That being said, the good Lord made them for digesting forage. And so even though a cow may have spent her first um, four years of life on a farm where they were giving her silage and some grain, her gut was designed by God to design to digest cellulose. And um, we've never bought in a cow that we couldn't, con- we couldn't um, switch over to all grass in the course of a year or so. Um, you might see, you might see a cow that's rather lean for some seasons in that first year. And you want your management to take that into consideration, but your goal is to uh, two things have to happen for her to be all grass. One, the biology in her gut, need to be cellulose digesting biota, not carbohydrate, um, like starch digesting biota. And the other changes, her, her rumen needs to get big enough to hold a whole lot of grass because grain is concentrated. It takes less room. So you want to get her there gradually, but we've never seen a cow that couldn't. Still, the best cow, like an ideal cow, she'd be um, a little bit below my shoulder height. She might be um, in the 40-inch range, thereabouts. Um, she's say she's five or six years old. She's already had two calves at least and lactated. So I know something about her ability to lactate. And we, and those births were good birth. That's right. She simple, easy. That's right. Unassisted births, live calves. She's pregnant already. So I don't have to, the first thing I do with her doesn't have to be figure out how to figure out when she's in heat and then get her bread. Um, a dairy cow is a cow that likes to be milked. If you pull up a stool next to this animal and she plants a foot in your chest, she give you know, like uh, you want to put a, if, you, if you're considering a cow near, on somebody else's farm, ask them whether that's normal and get them to stop her. See what it takes to make her not kick you. Does she have to wear kicking chains, hobbles? Does she have to have her foot tied? Does she have to have a kicking bar in her hips? Because if she does... She doesn't like to be milked and is therefore, by definition, not really a dairy cow, regardless of how much milk may come out of those teats. If she doesn't like to be handled, she's not really a dairy cow. Um, What else would you say, Sean? She needs to be mild. I mean, that's kind of the Uh same thing. But we love a cow. When, When people talk to us about a cow, they'll say she is the sweetest cow. And that's absolutely, this is a cow that you can reach, you can touch. She likes being with humans. That doesn't mean that if you walk up to her in the field, especially if this is the first time she's met you and you put your hand on her, it doesn't mean she's going to want you to touch her. She won't scoot away when she can, but it does mean that she'll walk into the barn, put her head in the stanchion and then hold still, even without treats, hold still while you milk her. Now a cow that's been accustomed to treats, she may fidget because she's thinking, where are my treats? And, and sometimes we've got our best cow is a dancer. So it will occasionally lift up its foot and stuff like that. It's not trying to kick me at all. It just, uh, I, you know, maybe it's a little bit uncomfortable on one foot or the other. So uh, that's not what we mean by right. a kicker. People, people need to understand um, that kicking is not just the lifting the foot. If, if you've got a cow that wants to kick you, she'll kick you. You'll know because she'll have kicked you. And then you'll say, oh, this cow wants to kick. Keep in mind, all of you listeners, since I know Matthew and Carissa know this, that a cow kick is not like a horse kick. 
you know, if, if you're in the, if you're in the path of a horse kick, there's a lot of power behind that solid hoof, but a cow, when she picks up a foot and kicks is doing a lightning fast move. That's not intended to damage. It's intended to move the thing that she's worried about. Um, typically that's going to be, she's going to kick with her back feet. What she got to protect back there, her udder, of course, the most sensitive part of her body, which is right where say a marauding coyote could grab it and tear it. Um, when she kicks you, if she plants one on you, it's probably a mistake, but just mere shifting of her feet, please don't think that's kicking because it isn't. Well, one thing, maybe our last question for cows, and then this will probably be a good place to uh, conclude. We hear, it seems constant, that you cannot milk a cow without grain and that the cow has to have grain as a treat or something else. Yeah, every once well, don't while tell, somebody, Don't tell our cows. Don't tell our cows. Every once in a while, somebody will fire us an email. It says, my neighbor says you've got to be lying. And we think, does he have so little imagination that the only options are you, um, you know, what he thinks is true or the other guy's lying? Yeah. But um, let's look at that statement. One, nature does not provide grain for grazing animals. Cows are grazing animals, so nature does not provide them grain. Therefore, they don't require grain. I think what's really going on, even if people don't um, examine their own thoughts this closely, is that when a, when a farmer or a vet or the guy at the feed store or the guy down the road says to you, you can't raise that cow without grain, and they'll say the same thing about beef steers, what they're really saying is, I have in my mind an idea of what a cow is and what it ought to do. Like a cow is a thing that converts bought grain into meat or milk, and it does it at a fairly rapid rate. And you can't get those results, like um, get a steer, say, from birth to 500 pounds in eight months without shoving grain in the front end, maybe right? Maybe, maybe you could, but at any rate, your neighbor is thinking you can't. Therefore, you can't raise your steer without grain because he assumes that his goals are the only goals. They're the right goals and that the way he knows of accomplishing them uh, is the only way there is. Now, our experience is that if you want a consistent amount of milk coming out all the time, you can have more success by putting a lot of grain into that this cow. This is not our experience, but that's what we can look at. Well, we had a little bit of that experience with the first with, cow. Oh, I guess we were, so. We were with, doing, with, um, and, and if, we, if we kept giving her more grain, we would actually get more milk. But what, we've, what we are doing is that we're letting the natural cycles happen so that we will get, a, we will get milk all summer long, on good grass lots and, and, lots of and then as we go into the winter we know that we're going to see a a, 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 a drop a in the amount of milk that we're getting especially as it gets colder we're going to get less uh, as it warms up we get a little bit more uh, but then when those cows hit april or march and that grass is new grass is coming in and the warmth comes in that production just explode. The same cow that was giving you six pounds a day, which is about three quarts, will be giving you 18 pounds a day. So if you want to have a, if you don't want to see any of these dips, 
yeah, grain helps. Uh, but also grain is not good for, this is not the best thing for these animals. Best done a lot of research into that and read things where people are saying by keeping them at this hot burning grain fed amount, it's actually ruining their insides, their Right. There are a lot organs. of problems with feeding grain, um, that is simple carbs to an animal whose job is to break down cellulose. Um, let's back up for a minute. We've got a planet clothed in leaves that need to be harvested for multiple purposes, two of which are to feed all the animals directly in, in the case of herbivores and indirectly in the case of omnivores and, and carnivores, and it's got to feed the soil. 80% of that is cellulosic fiber. God put grazing animals, particularly ruminants of all kinds, all over the planet to release the energy of cellulose so that it's available in the form of meat, usually, to all the other animals on the planet or, you know, all the, all the omnivore slash um, carnivores on the planet. So our job when we're managing cows is to harvest cellulose. That's one of the reasons that we elected to become all grass, all native forage. Um, I want to give you another couple of pictures there. Here's one. Good farming has been the pursuit of humanity. Good animal and plant management has been the pursuit of humanity since the garden, since the garden of Eden. Um, it, it has taken the form of agriculture, we are told by anthropologists, for about 12,000 years. Much good knowledge has kept humanity living and thriving on this planet and of latter years reproducing in big numbers. So we have had some successes along those lines. But in the last three generations, four generations, actually, you know, depending on where you want to start, all the way back to maybe... Uh, <laughs> the 1200s and 1300s, that knowledge has been sort of bleeding off gradually as we found other ways to keep our, our minds busy. And in especially since, since World War II, it's, it's disappeared. Our, our grandfathers were farmers, but by the time we knew the questions to ask them, they were dead. So that their torch did not get passed on to us. Um, so when we undertake to learn to farm, we need to know what our preconceived notions are. We need to begin to peel away at, at unquestioned un, and unquestioning assumptions that we've built up that are the, our idea of farming and go back to first causes. Instead of saying to ourselves, for example, um, my research and my experience of, of conventional ag is that steers should grow this fast, cows should make this much milk, um, and therefore that those are my goals for those animals. We, especially from Sean and me, this has been our, our farming uh, goal for 40 years almost. We want to know what is the nature of these plants and animals? How did God create them? What was his intention for them? Not just because on some philosophical level, it's better to do things God's way than in some other way. But because if we want this system to work without boosting it up with 
um, modern chemicals, meds, uh, petrochemically derived and grown and harvested grains, etc. If we want it to work, we need to go back to first causes. That means that instead of shoving grain in a cow to get to get a um, a goal that we've formulated out of modern uh, modern agricultural goals and not out of what is the nature of cows and grass and and what how did God design them to work? We need to, we need to start from how do we um, let's let's de- design our husbandry around the nature of the herbivore, the ways she harvests, um, the ways native forages make possible her. 12 months of the year, nourishment and health. And then determine, having done our best for the animal, let her show us what's the best she can do for us. And this this, this would apply to grass, this, this um, reticence about trying to squeeze the system for all it will give us should apply to all of our farming methods. And in fact, it should apply to the way we treat other people. Um, Instead of having an outcome, this is what I want. I can use um, any means that isn't egregiously illegitimate to get to this goal. We've tried to say, um, what's the nature of this animal? How is she to live? I'm going to give you one reference point. Fred Provenza is, um, I'm going to say, a brilliant uh, livestock and wildlife nutritionist, biologist, he has a book called Nourishment, and it's worth reading. It can be a little, um, it can be, it can have some fairly dense sections full of science talk, but it's very well written. And for us Catholics, I'm just going to warn you that Fred was raised a Catholic and is not a Catholic. Um, so he's, at, as so many Catholics in the last century have lost what little faith they might have had by not seeing. Uh, through the ill health of the church in the last century. Um, So don't let that turn you off or at least not too much, but it's a great book to read about how grazing animals are designed to meet their needs in a natural environment where they improve the environment and the environment not only grows them, but gives them deep, resilient health. That's a great book. We have watched that happen on our pastors at the Franciscan convent up the road as our cows were transitioned to 12 months of the year grazing on all native forages that we manage in intense rotation. They maintain a level of health we've never seen in any animals anywhere. How is that evinced? Well, in addition to the fact that they grow slow but strong, um, they're beautiful, they're um, bouncy, they, they uh, um, reproduce well. It shows in things like a very fluffy, sparkly coat. Um, the best gunned teddy bear can't compete with our cows for beauty of coat. Those are, I'm throwing that out there as just a hint, an example of why, as we Catholics, move back into the realm of agriculture, we desperately need to um, put our faith in 
God's and the way God created and the way he holds creation in being and not decide that we not have preconceived outcomes toward which we are willing to take whatever, um, to use whatever methods we can cull from our researches on YouTube or in farming books or whatever. We need to go back to the first principle, which is we will behave with justice and reverence toward the plants, animals, and soil, the people placed within the reach of our judgment, and then trust that if we do that, God's going to honor that with health and abundance. And the learning that happens is through observation. That's right. Uh, sometimes we hear people talk about, and again, they're maybe following YouTube or they're following books or things like that, but they're not out there watching their animals. So they will say things like, well, you, you have to give it that's grain. That's right. You can't raise well, that cow with That's grain. not that's not been our experience. What is that really been your experience that, that an animal will stop lactating if it's not given grain? I mean, every animal eventually is going to stop lactating, but, but that's not been our, our experience. And I think it's really important that people observe and observe well and watch what their animals are eating. Then when they see and hear people say things like that, they say, well, that's not been my experience. And I trust my experience and my <laughs> observation over you unless you're, you're also basing it on your observations, which maybe have more experience than mine. Sean often says to people, um, if somebody tells you the solution costs money, you need to think twice about that solution. And, um, if they're selling something, that's going to be part right. Or even if what they're saying is this biological community that you're undertaking to direct in ways that will make it more abundant, more healthy and more beautiful. This biological community absolutely requires some man-made purchased input. Then anybody's reason, Christian, Catholic or otherwise, ought to, ought to at some point send up a red flag that says, hmm, I wonder how nature manages without all those inputs. That's wonderful. It's great. It's a good reminder, especially the idea of observing the animals and not becoming so committed to maybe the guidance of someone else that you're seeing online who lives in a completely different geography and a completely different place and climate right. and really bringing that back to where you physically are which is right. probably a good reminder of how we ought to consider what we ought to be doing in life anyways. Is right. in, in farming, there are no experts. In farming, in, in when we deal with nature, there are no experts. They're just practitioners. And we're all accruing. Um, it's a little bit like being Catholic. We, yes. we continue to practice being Catholic. Right, right. And those people who think they are the perfect Catholics probably are not. The saints are the people who are the first to say, one, I didn't, I, I have not accomplished what has been accomplished through me. And two, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, it's all straw, right? It's all, it's, it's just the beginnings. I'm just beginning to see how glorious things could be if I was better at serving them and getting out of the way. And I'll just throw this in there too. We have a terrific amount of fun and we eat three phenomenal meals a day. And we go to bed at night expecting the same thing the next day. And we sleep well. Yeah. And, um, and 
I'm not sure what else we could want. Right. A Caribbean cruise, great. maybe. Uh, <laughs> right now when it's 14 <laughs> degrees outside. <laughs> well, this was wonderful, Sean and Beth. And I, I really appreciate you all taking time out to talk with Sweet. us again. And every time that we do, we feel honored to have the conversation with you all. We know that we're going to learn something every time that we do have a chance to speak with you. And certainly this was another one of those examples so thank I want to say thank you uh, for being a part of the podcast once again. And thank you for being willing to speak in the way that you do to help bring others uh, to a better understanding of what it means to farm, to homestead, and for your willingness to speak about the faith as well. It's been our pleasure. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Little Way Farm and Homestead podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about this episode and be sure to tune in next week.